Welcome to the Gaining Momentum Podcast with your hosts, Abby and Megan. This is the podcast where we try our best to parent our kids for the world we want them to grow up in and the world we live in now. Momentum community. We're back with another episode. This week, Megan and I talked to Chuanis Ogilvie, who is an Indigenous educator, among so many other descriptors that we can add to her name. Meg, how did you feel about that conversation and what was it about? Oh my goodness. This conversation, it was really inspiring. It was really powerful. You know, we were we went into the conversation looking to talk about um, family stories and the role that they play in our identity and how we understand ourselves in the world and how we pass those traditions on within our own families. And as you'll hear in the episode, we actually dive into a whole bunch more. So much more. That that sort of opens the door for lots of really important discussion on really connecting it with some of the other things that we have explored on gaining momentum in the past. Um, so this is actually the first part of that conversation. We hope you get as much out of it as we did. We just felt really lucky to be able to sit down and dive into the stuff that you're going to hear. Enjoy. We are so excited to welcome today's guest, Chiwinis Ogilvie, to Gaining Momentum. Chiwinis is a member of Chiaklisset and Clioquit nations of the New Channel people on the west coast of Vancouver Island. Part of her work in the field of Indigenous education has included helping post-secondary institutions to up their inclusion and allyship game to provide a more welcoming environment for Indigenous students, faculty, and staff. She has also done a lot of work in sexual violence prevention. I met Chuanis in the fall during a virtual happy hour hosted by the Vancouver Podcast Festival. During the happy hour, everyone was sharing about their podcast, Current and Forthcoming. When Chuanis spoke about her idea for a podcast featuring her grandfather's stories and family history, we felt compelled to reach out immediately and ask her to come on Gaining Momentum to talk about it. So without further ado, please welcome to the pod, Chuanis Ogilvie. Hi, Chuanis. <laughs> Hi, thank you very much. That was really excellent. It's always interesting listening to how you're kind of seen in the world oh for sure definitely <laughs> interesting and sometimes uncomfortable sometimes awkward but then also sometimes you, you need to sit in the pride of all your yeah. roles and accomplishments and I should also say mother of two yes 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 mother of two and I can make a wicked pot of clam chowder Ooh. Ooh. I that too. So all my close people who might be listening it's a very very specific skill so. no kidding <laughs> no kidding do you do like a cream based or the, the like red no super no no red super all the close people listening we all know it's super plain I guess oh. it would it would seem super plain and I'm not going to tell you the Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fishing for it. <laughs> yeah. We'll accept yeah. some in the mail though. Should you decide yes. that you want to send yes. some out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I have two children. One I had when I was 24 and she is currently 26. So she doesn't uh, live with me, but she lives in Victoria and my son, uh, is Kim Wan. He's 13, soon to be 14. And so, yeah, they're the center of my world. 
Awesome. Well, we're excited mm-hmm. to hear more about them through our discussion today. Meg, do you want to start out with our first question? Sure. So as Abby was saying in your intro, we were really interested in exploring more deeply the idea of family histories and how they inform us and how they inform our identity and all the things, uh, you know, in our life. But I just wanted to throw out a real general question to you to begin with, which is what does family history mean to you? Also, Megan's petting her cat right now. In case you're wondering what she's doing. My cat is over here. I'm trying to keep him um, like occupied so he does not walk all over the computer. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. I, well, yes, I can relate and I love um, animals in the house. So yeah. So family history, what does that mean to me? Well, for me, it places me rightfully in the world, in the universe. So uh, when we're talking about family history, it doesn't just mean my human family. It also means my ancestors and the land, uh, the sky, the water over here on the coast on, uh, on the island. Um, it means all of those beings. And it's also family history, I suppose, is a looking back kind of thing. And so sometimes we do that in my family, you know, uh, understand how, for example, this island at one point in time before there were people burnt down and then became regenerated. It's important to know how we dealt with that event on this island because those stories help us make decisions and take into consideration mm-hmm. about how we may move forward in a, in a current context. Mm-hmm. So I think about all of those family histories. I know uh, that other things that ruminate and float through my mind are family trees and how you can go on ancestor.com <laughs> and find out if you're related to a chihuahua. <laughs> or something. But you know, you don't need to waste your money because we are all kind of related in some mm-hmm. way and connected. So, um, yeah, I like to think about um, how those stories and our histories impact the way I parent today, mm. too. Mm-hmm. Yes. They really do. So I don't even know how to phrase this because family history is such a big topic. But I guess, Mm. how did you learn about your family's history? Like who spoke to you about it and who kind of taught you about your family's origin story? Yes, uh, I would say that definitely. So I'm a a person who experienced the 60s scoop Mm. and came through it on the other end. So folks know this is a period of time when as the residential schools were closing, Mm -hmm they started taking Indigenous children out of their homes and adopting them into white homes Mm -hmm. uh, as part of a a policy of assimilation. And in fact, the whole field of social work was birthed out of this era. Um, However, in my story, I spoke my language up until I was four years old. And I did spend time around some old people who were always encouraged me before I was scooped, which is a nice way to put it. Makes me think of it. I was just going to say, it makes it seem lovely. It is not. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Yeah. So then I was moved into a couple of foster homes and then adopted out. But I went back when I was 17. Oh, wow. Wow. When I went back, I was fortunate to uh, spend time with um, 
uh, a family out in Seenage, the Paul family. And late Philip Paul was one of our great leaders, I will say. And he really took me under his wing. He was late George Manuel's uh, right-hand man in a way. They worked very much in tandem. So that was a good experience for me. And so he provided a broad context of the story of colonization for mm -hmm. me at a very mm -hmm. important age. Mm -hmm. And he did that because he knew I was going towards it. He didn't tell a person who wasn't interested in learning. He told somebody who was choosing to learn the difficult truths, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. so then after that, they helped me through ceremony. And you don't even need to know much about the ceremony or any of those things. But he did that and encouraged me to ask for help to get home. Mm. Of course, you know, through the government, I wasn't going to get any help. Mm -hmm. I tried very hard. I knew I was Indian. Mm -hmm. I used to go down to the museum and try to find out who I was. I'd sit there as a teenager mm -hmm. and look at those things and I would come back and it was just an ache I couldn't remove. I knew because the language was embedded in my brain and in my, uh, my heart and my emotions. Mm -hmm. So then when they helped me, um, all of a sudden, it was like my brain unscrambled from the trauma. Mm -hmm. and the name of my foster family, it literally felt like a raindrop through the top oh, of wow. my skull. Yeah. And then they, we got on the phone course that was before cell phones and all that. people. So it was a little slower, but we picked up the phone and that person got me in contact with my grandfather. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Now the thing about my grandfather was he was between 97 and a hundred when he finally passed away. It's amazing. That's incredible. It's his father prevented him from going to residential school until the RCMP came and physically removed him. And they weren't sure about his age. It was between 16 and 19. So his father threatened to kill the priest if he came near his boys. Mm -hmm. So that's a story of resistance. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. And so then my grandfather, as soon as he found out, he knew exactly who I was. Because there were a few old people who knew I'd been taken mm -hmm. and were very heartbroken. In fact, my great granny hitchhiked from Tifino mm -hmm. to Nanaimo to ask my uncle, where did she go? That's not our way. We don't do that. And of course, you know, uh, it was a really difficult conversation. But my grandfather and my oldest brother, Dennis, used to go down to Victoria and look for me Wow, at the mall things like that so as soon as he got the call he came down to victoria and he came to meet me and that is exactly when i started to learn about the history of Ta'okwit and chaklaset my new channel of history so i had a good foundation from the paul family and all the history you know he also helped me understand the history of uh uh, native politics on the island mm -hmm. in MBC. So I had that good foundation from which to have my first meeting with my grandfather. And of course, there was lots of tears mm -hmm. and crying. Mm -hmm. My first image of him was him walking up my stair stairs with his arms outstretched and tears just streaming oh. down his face. 
because I chose. And he said, you know, it's good because you chose mm-hmm. to come. Mm-hmm. Well, and he's right yeah. there to welcome you. Yeah. Back. I love that. Yeah. And that Thanks. piece that you said about like this sudden unscrambling in your brain, I think it just says a lot about how powerful and how essential and fundamental it, the, the identity piece is for people. Right. And like just linking to what you're saying about like family histories, family stories with without some of that, you know, the struggle that we may have to understand who we are um, and just that power in it to say that as soon as you started to have those pieces come into place or those puzzle pieces start to link, you felt like an unscrambling happening within your brain you said but I think that speaks so much to like personhood and identity and just the power that lives in that yeah it really is powerful and it also inspired me that when I'm working with younger people or I'm talking to my children that I listen as well Mm -hmm. because the other piece that my grandfather did was not just impart stories he also listened to my experience and my stories. Mm-hmm. And uh, we spent so much time together. Like I even moved next door to him. <laughs> <laughs> and I was his driver and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we made time for each other. And so you have to make time for those stories and we have to listen to them if we don't. So it makes me think of something when you're talking to that some people don't have access mm-hmm. to those stories. Mm-hmm. And so does it mean they'll forever go around ungrounded? But I think, no, I think that folks need to be encouraged to tell that story Mm. and to be able to decide, like uh, uh, one of my aunts told me, when you get up in the morning, and my grandfather told me in our prayer, you get up in the morning, you ask for the right thoughts so that you can take the next right action. Mm so that we are sort of living in the now and deciding who we are. And in fact, that's one thing that was reiterated to me is that to help me deal with the onslaught of information from media now, social media, telling me who I am as a new person, et cetera, that I have to every day and almost every minute decide who I am in the world to not allow others to decide. Mm-hmm. So that's a story we're not telling younger people and we're not showing by our own actions. And and I think we need to get better at that for okay. sure. Mm-hmm. That's powerful being deciding who you are and learning who you are, not being told who you are by other people. Mm-hmm. I like that idea a lot Me too. Also, and I think it links to what you just said, if our stories are difficult ones, or they have hardship in them, or they're even ones that we feel shame around. You know, how do we move forward with those family histories? I think you really hit on it there, though. It's about choosing to believe who you are and wake up every day and start building that story. Yes, exactly. And to also build, um, you know, your sort of little net, like I think of a fishing net that catches fish. And, you know, there are some things that, you know, stay because they're going to feed people and some things that won't. And so you also need to build your net of people who are able to and um, and willing and supportive of hearing the difficult stories. So mm-hmm. for example, in my family, 
I have family in Splalom and um, uh, we have made a conscious decision to be able to have difficult conversations, which includes, you know, perhaps it could be something like this occurred the other day and that didn't go well for me and mm -hmm. let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. or, or it can be about larger things, you know, larger topics that impact all of our communities. But the willingness starts with being willing to uh, be able to have difficult conversations. Well, I mean, this is how it works. I'm only sharing my stories of what works for me and my mm -hmm. family. It may not work for other people. So I'm really, I just want to really say of that. Course. Mm -hmm. I don't want in anyone else to choose. Right. The other thing is in what I know as an Indigenous person, as I see and have seen it in myself, is that we, we have to be careful of not abandoning ourselves and not giving up on ourselves. Mm -hmm. So giving up looks like being too scared to share your story somewhere. You don't necessarily have to do it with another human being too. You can share your story when you're out on the land, whatever, whatever works to let that out because mm -hmm. to express means to push up and out and then it doesn't hold you hostage anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think that our uh, having difficult conversations for me as a, a coastal person, I can't speak for others, requires that we do the things that we know to, to help our body, ourselves get back into our body. So for me, it's jumping in the river. It's a, a ceremony we call usamch and making time for those things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that as we get older, we're supposed to accumulate our experiences and be able to share them even the ones where we made lots of mm -hmm. mistakes, you know, the value in that. So for example, my experience in land defense type of activities, I have to be able to talk to my younger relatives, you know, who are engaging in that now and say, you know, here's some things we did. I see you going in that direction and we did those things. And, and here's another way to think about it. Mm -hmm. We're not necessarily telling people what to do, but giving them some good advisement about um, what worked and what didn't work. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I was just like chewing all, all that. And I'm like, okay. I forget we're on a podcast sometimes. And so I'm just like, oh, I just have so much to think about and so much I want to say. And just this is hitting me so hard. I love it. I know. This. And I was like, let's talk about land defenders, but we will stay on track. <laughs> Well, you were talking a bit about your life and growing up and the scoop. And my son actually had a question for you because I oh. said, okay, we're going to have a woman named Chawinis on and she's going to talk to us a bit about family history. And I told him family history is, you know, where you came from, where your grandparents came from, where their grandparents came from. It goes all the way back. So I said, do you have a question for her about that? And first he said, his first question was, how do you make an Easter egg? And I was like, okay, well, maybe we'll ask about another question. <laughs> and so I reframed and I said, do you have a question about family history for her? <laughs> and so his question was, where have you lived in your life? Oh, where have I lived in my life? Excellent. And I'm going to start out by saying, yes, what children teach us is we need to be very specific. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. 
a topic specific <laughs> question. <laughs> you want to know what I want to know right now? And unfortunately, I'm not a good person to be able to help with that question. I'm sorry. But I can say where I have lived. And so I'm going to guess around it and then I'm going to answer it how I want to. And I hope that's okay with your son. But of course, um, I have lived specifically in the area of Victoria. When I was initially scooped, I was taken from Tofino and it's called Tlaoquiet, which you pronounced well in the beginning. <laughs> Nailed <you>. it. Um, <laughs> yeah. To uh, the city of Kamloops. That's originally oh. where I was taken to and lived there until I was eight. And then uh, my adoptive family moved us back towards uh, the island. Mm, okay. Yeah. So I have not lived in many other places because, of course, part of me being pulled away from home has meant that I don't want to go anywhere else. And in fact, I'll tell you a cute story. Your son might like this. My grandfather and I were talking about words in our language, and I asked him what the word for butterfly was. And he said, cuts common. And I said, okay. He said, but I won't call you that. I'll call you classic. And I said, okay, okay. And I knew to not ask too much. I just said, <laughs> okay. And he looked at me very sweetly. He was a very loving person. He said, I'm, I won't call you cuts common because you might get wings and fly away from oh. me. That's, That's so, so beautiful. <laughs> because, you know, in that little story, he healed so many things mm -hmm. that were an alternative story in my life. You're mm -hmm. not wanted. Mm -hmm. You don't belong. And just that one little mm -hmm. story he made up on the fly. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. It's beautiful. beautiful. That is really beautiful. <laughs> yeah, he dismantled all the, you know, like these stories you were telling yourself about who you were in his exactly. creative, beautiful couple of sentences exactly exactly <laughs> and even if you haven't necessarily lived a lot of places like you have been a lot of places and you made your way home mm -hmm. and that I think is a lot as well because it's not yeah. always about where you go but it's where you're able to return to as well Ooh, well said yes it's so true and then creating the the feeling of home again with my children you know I like to tell the story to my children they never had to go through that and so that story of um a victory that they never had to get um removed they never spent time in foster care mm -hmm. I've there I've been a solid person and not only that I chose to learn as much as I could about our family histories and stories so that they would be equipped to uh, understand who they are in relation to the world, in relation to the other nations on this island. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, beyond that, outside of the island, you know, they also would know how to conduct themselves. So knowing that that uh, cycle that was meant to assimilate, to break in a way, uh, wasn't totally successful in my mm -hmm. family. And I think that's a, an amazing thing. And of course, that was carried through my grandfather, you know, mm -hmm. um, his father. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like you're, you know, the, the story is continuing and, and 
the way that you're talking about um, this part of the story with your own kids. This is what it's been for us. And that can, and that's like the next part of our family story. Um, and it starts with grandfather, but it, you know, continues in this very important and beautiful way that informs identity, right? Moving forward. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think, you know, my grandfather really um, empowered me to think creatively about raising my children, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I, I like to use this example. It's kind of funny. I, I would tell uh, my children stories about Kwatiat, this woman who would take children if they weren't being watched and careful, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not necessarily the stories that that is important, but um, my, my children were raised on those stories. And so um, there's also another story about these people underground who who would take children too from my daughter's uh, father's side of the family from Ahuzit. And, and so, you know, in the context of our living room, if they're acting up at a certain age, all I would do was like bang my foot on the door or go point at the mountains at Kwatiat and say, you know what? And so the whole idea, you know, behind some of what my grandfather taught me and you know our people do was that it's less about you telling them what the rules are mm-hmm. but it creates children who think differently about their own behavior mm-hmm. because if it's not you dictating the rules and we have this relative out there who may you know there may be consequences for your actions <laughs> You get the opportunity to think about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so often they would stop in their tracks and and do something differently. Um, but I do think it's a beautiful way uh, to raise children. And it also helps me as a parent who's grown up in a colonial society and mm-hmm. been to school for far too long and uh, has been, you know, in a Canadian state that has demanded we give up our collective rights for individual rights for so-called protection by military and RCMP. Mm-hmm. That's a highly outside yourself system, mm-hmm. and we're inundated with it every day. So hanging on to those stories in a context as a new channel person is actually vital to maintaining my identity in a daily way and to help me take into consideration how I have taken in the obedience mm-hmm. and the rule following of a Canadian society. So mm-hmm. yeah. I, I like the way that that story and that that piece that you were just talking about shifts who we're accountable to. So when you're talking to your kids, you're accountable to your ancestors, not to these other systems. And you're not just accountable to me as your parent, you're accountable to our history. And then you get these beautiful ways of communicating that through narrative and story um, that are really powerful and sort of like do the job, right? (laughs) When you bang your foot and- (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You have to kind of sneak bang it. Yeah. And then it doesn't fly when it's a later age. But that's why, you know, you had children, at least in co-societies, who took more responsibility on because they were in a chain of, like, littlers and olders. So, you know, you're responsible to everybody. And you were raised to think, mm-hmm. which is you know not a light thing to say because this 
the world we are in now <laughs> discourages that. Totally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so being able to do that is really important. So then the the, the side effect of, of raising children like that is they get clever. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Abby and I can and both they, relate. <laughs> yep. Yes. And a Abby gave an excellent example of the boy saying, well, I want to know about Easter eggs. <laughs> Yeah, my grandfather, same story of your son. My grandfather had some uh, students from UBC and asking them uh, if they, you know, tell us some stories. And he's like, what do you want to tell stories about? Do you want it about governance? Do you want it about our laws? Do you want it about our, you know, so-called children's stories, which actually weren't, you know, the publishing world has done a number on relegating things to children and right. adults yeah. and, mm -hmm. and, and things too. I, I think that also another thing that's impacted, and I suppose, you know, part of the human family history that has impacted me is understanding why we've become burdened with uh, the approach to stories that we currently have and we have to constantly be unraveling. So um, I teach at UVic and I was talking to my students today um, about uh, Freud's book, Civilization and Its Discontents. Mm. And I was saying that's partly the trap we've been in. We're chasing the hierarchy of emotions of happy and angry and that's about it. Mm -hmm. I said, in our culture, we paid attention and told stories about being irritated and catching ourselves in those moments and making sure we made time to address and process, I suppose, those feelings so that we're moving forward. Uh, some people say in a good way, which I think is funny, but um, moving forward in, in the most appropriate way possible for that event and situation. And so... It's, you know, part of being in school for me has been also to unravel why we got what we got currently, why mm -hmm. we're in the mess that we're in. And I think, well, Freud's not around. Maybe he'd be here and saying, oh, my God, why'd you listen to me? Pathetic <laughs> jaw at the time. And I would think he was taking heroin or something <laughs> to deal with. It. So, you know, I don't know why we lean so much on certain stories to mm -hmm. say we are. And then also in terms of family history, I think about how we've, uh, how the, you know, the, the worldview we currently are sitting with says we're nothing and we become something. Mm -hmm. Worldview, that's not the truth, actually. We're sort of making sure we orient ourselves in line with the babies yet to come, the future generations, the land and all of that is sort of garbled with a linear sense of time in a box of deciding that humans are evolving from being uncivilized to civilized. Right. Those are stories that we have to do the job, I think, that that uh, settlers also have to do to unpack. And white folks need to understand their own stories and histories and how they've been impacted. Or the Industrial Revolution. Right. Why, why are we in the trouble that we're in? That's a point in history, in European history, that's really impacted us. So Yeah. yeah. And there's so much, you know, that you're saying there 
that that shows like the value in decolonizing the way that we share and the way that we understand histories and tell stories uh, because you know when you're talking there I can't help but think oh yeah those are products of empire and capitalism right mm-hmm. like wanting yeah. to um, you know bootstrap you build up who you are you you accumulate you think about you and maybe just your little slice of family not like the bigger all of those pieces and yet like it's so obvious and evident that when we start to like pull back from that and like take a more decolonized approach to how we understand ourselves and our families and our histories we are we're healthier right like we're better Mm -hmm. we are more emotionally evolved we are more connected um it's so evident yeah so I just I loved what you were saying there because it becomes so clear to me like oh there's there's where it lives yes exactly and I think that's the thing we're used to institutionalized thinking and we're even used to thinking in activist circles in a particular way about ourselves and each other Mm -hmm. we don't create a lot of space to really look at how we're doing it in a daily way mm-hmm. within the, the context of our homes mm-hmm. and when people aren't watching. Yeah. That's yeah. something that came up for me. I was thinking about during our discussion here is we have to be willing to do the next right thing even when no one is watching and yes. especially when no one's watching. Yes, totally. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. That's part of the the burden that we have. Because I'm, of course, I'm going to be 50 at the end of April. And so um, I'm thinking about the world a little bit differently. I recognize that. And I have to push myself to think broadly uh, and to change old habits <laughs> and like in terms of my thinking. But I do uh, see a big change in my life of the impact of social media. Mm, and mm-hmm. and how stories get taken up and what particular stories get shown and which don't it's still kind of the same thing uh being uh repeated it's interesting to be this you know half a century <laughs> and so much wisdom half a century's worth yeah he's gonna say that means you've accumulated so many stories to pass on and share mm-hmm. and now we get to be the lucky ones to hear it so i'm excited <laughs> that's awesome yeah and you know the whole thing of making time. I have um, uh, nieces. Some of them are not technically my blood nieces, but I have um, nieces that are really working hard uh, to, uh, you know, in English, I suppose you'd say sovereign, be self-determining for themselves, coming from the local island nations. Mm-hmm. They are working really hard to imagine another way out of that loop. And, you know, one thing uh, that I really appreciate and I love about them is they always invite me in to the space to be able to to offer some of my own stories or stories that I've shared. Uh, they've gone out and had experiences, mm-hmm. you know, being active politically. And then they come back and say, Auntie, I need to talk to you. Remember you, you told me this story? Well, that happened to me too. And so then we put our heads together mm-hmm. and we say, okay, what can we do different so we don't keep bringing back that same story? Mm-hmm. What can we do differently together? So I don't tell them, you know, you're doing things wrong. You should <laughs> listen to what we did. I think about what's my job as auntie and going towards being a grandma. What's my job? My job is to make sure I've 
looked at my own stories mm-hmm. and look at the strengths and challenges with it and be willing to share, not just go tell people what to do, not just tell them what to do and then flee off back away, but to be around. So, you know, when my niece needs to talk and I'm a little bit sleepy, I say, well, you know what? I'm just a little bit sleepy. I'll be okay. I'll answer that call because you never know when someone might need to lean on you. I find we've gotten a little bit cheap with our time Mm -hmm. with each other. And some of that, of course, is because of this crazy virus and and how that's impacted and landed for us. But um, I, I like to, yeah, I just like to say, that about my nieces they really make time or they want to go for a walk you know they could be doing all kinds of other things Mm -hmm. which include not hanging out uh with her auntie but they make time for me and that's important too absolutely (laughs) and it's it sounds like you're really talking about there too um you know it's about making time but it's also walking with right so when they come to you it's not you know imparting or like telling but to walk with and to listen and what, and I'm sure, I mean, I'm finding every day, even with my own kids, like when I, I am walking with and I'm guiding, but I'm also learning so much from mm-hmm. the things that they say and do. So at this part of the program, we always like to take a minute to give our momentum shout out. Abby, you were telling me about something that you saw happening when you were out with your son this week. Uh, yes, I went to a botanical garden because it's one of the few things that is both open and able to be socially distanced and feel mm-hmm. safe. So we were there and there is a hedge maze. Yeah, yeah. maze made of hedges. I don't know why I'm explaining <laughs> that. And so it's what it sounds like. Yeah. And there's a sign at the front that says, you know, one household in there at a time. So I just kind of yelled in, is anybody in there? And mm-hmm. I heard a person yell back, yeah, we're in here. So my child and I just waited and I really loved, I could kind of hear the interaction going on in there. There was a parent in there with their child Mm -hmm. and this parent was really mindful not to rush the child through the maze just because someone was waiting. Like Mm -hmm. they made sure that their child was able to go in there and make the decisions and find their way out on their own terms. And Mm -hmm. as they were able, instead of working on other people's timetable. Mm, That is impressive. I really appreciated that because there's something important about being able to make decisions and not feeling rushed if you don't have Mm -hmm. to be. And not like informed by social implications versus what's good for you. Exactly. Because, you know, it's a maze. And it's also if we didn't get in there two minutes sooner Mm -hmm. or something, like we would miss out on Mm -hmm. something. Totally. And so, you know, like she, I felt almost like she assessed the situation and saw that there wasn't a need. Cause of course there are moments where you mm-hmm. need to rush, but in this situation, like nothing was going to be changed by them going through there more mm-hmm. quickly or her daughter not having the opportunity mm-hmm. to enjoy the experience and make decisions yeah. and, you know, work on like yeah. figuring out how do we get ourselves yeah. out of here. And also every other kid that's waiting, learn something from that as well, that you're not entitled mm-hmm. to what you want right when you want it exactly and it made me be mindful when i was in there awesome well thanks for that and i was just listening to another podcast where somebody was talking about how um, we we also can get closed off and we can get stuck in our stories and we think that young people maybe don't have you know like they're naive or they don't have something to offer but she was saying how much 
when she's like been able to check that she's like learning right and being able to like take so much from what they have to offer um so they have their stories to share right yeah that's really really true and i i think that you know the impact of colonization on some of our families and communities in those roles have created a situation where younger people are like mm, i don't want to go talk to that person because they may become preachy like right you know, in a, you know, we understand and, and can empathize with the experience of those individuals. Once we know, we kind of are given the task of trying to do things differently, right? And for me, I've just always been, I popped out of the oven, uh, <laughs> curious and interested in enjoying and listening. And so I guess you can't really change that about me. And, um, and so when I am with younger people, see, I feel like you know, the people on this island are quite beautiful. We understand, we have kind of like a, we do, we have aunties, we have grandmas and, and you know, in a certain way, we, we pay deference. Like if you're in your grandma's house, you know which one is their chair, mm -hmm. you know how they like their tea mm -hmm. or their coffee or if they don't or if they're diabetic or we, we do things to make sure we're taking care of and nurturing each other because we know we can get um, that kind of response back. I think we have a beautiful way of approaching family and, and, and facilitating um, the sharing of stories and experiences. My kids, one of their favorite things was to have, a, you know, have a little while they're eating. So they come sit at the table and ponder a problem usually that they were fishing for a discussion <laughs> about. So they present the problem or the issue they're facing while they're eating their sandwich. And usually I'm doing something like uh, doing the dishes or something at the same time. And so um, they'll come up with an issue and I'll listen to it. But I have to listen for when they're looking to, to have another view mm -hmm. on that situation usually it's only about validating what they're seeing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. I really, uh, I really enjoy uh, those moments when I am able to witness my children seeing themselves and embracing the way that they think, but also knowing, you know, there's a possibility that I might be seeing things a little off. So I'm going to check with a trusted person. Mm -hmm. Trust. That's the important thing being having adults of trust. And I think that's part of sharing our stories with each other too, because then you gain the new perspectives and the new insights. And that's how you build trust when you start to know somebody and you build an actual relationship. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Unlike the one where, you know, Canada produced an apology or a residential school. And then they became quite voyeuristic about us sharing our stories. Mm -hmm. And um, and continue to like take any issue. Voyeurism, we have to make a decision about who in our lives are people that when you know we're healing or doing any of those things with our story, we we need to make sure that we're connecting with people who aren't just taking from it yes. and taking forward. I see that happen all over too, sort of in a, in a uh, like in the news and on media. Mm -hmm. 
And that takes, that's a very disempowering experience as well. So we want to choose that, you know, people who aren't going to be voyeuristic and retell stories about being a victim, you know, because that's a good story. <laughs> not there to recreate and tell, right? Yes. We were actually just having this conversation in my family the other day because my older brother is an independent filmmaker. So we were talking about storytelling and story sharing versus story taking. Mm. <gasps> yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, a good example of that is the book Daughters of Copper Woman. I don't know if you've heard of that. No. It used to be. It's been sold all over, but it is about new channels people. And the author is a white author. And she took the stories of some folks from a house it. And then she retold them in a way that was, I think it was part of like first wave feminism or something. And, and so then those stories were greatly changed. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of story taking. Now, I do know that uh, two authors uh, that were Indigenous took her to task. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe Jeanette Armstrong and Lee Miracle, uh, and you know, had a, a conversation about appropriation. Yep, appropriating someone else's story. It's a it's a battle that's ongoing though because we live in a society that consumes everything. It mm -hmm. is capitalist, mm -hmm. and like mm -hmm. you say, imperialist. So everything is consumable. You know. Yeah. For sure. I, I watched a video of the other day, I, and I'm not from a smudging culture. I, I do know people who are, and this guy was on there talking about how you can buy a sage stick from Amazon, and you can anybody can take it up as practice in their home. So it's, it's kind of like insidious. It's constantly happening. Yeah, mm -hmm. that and that kind of like, quote, visibility, it, you know, there's a, I think there's a confusion between like, um, appreciation, like we would talk about, and appropriation, and that visibility isn't always respectful or appropriate, right? So, in terms of mm -hmm. like taking go go being able to go to Amazon and purchase a medicine, ultimately that is like sacred, you know, and being able to just you know willy nilly use that in whatever way, you know, somebody does. Yeah, it's deeply like my whole body just sort of like seized when I heard you say that. So true. And then, you know, the thing is, part of the difficult thing to accept is the society is created to be like that. Mm -hmm. And so we have a choice about how to respond, when to respond to those situations. So, you know, the power of also saying no mm -hmm. is yeah. really important. You do not have permission. I think one of the things that I've, noticed from my own experience was my grandfather sharing stories is it empowered me to be able to address things in the moment so going back to being able to have difficult mm -hmm. conversations mm -hmm. we need to raise our kids up to be able to address things in the moment and not wait mm -hmm. we sometimes wait until they're in post-secondary before they can write a scathing response back to you know some issue mm -hmm. around colonization or something mm -hmm. We say that's when you can say instead of saying when we're at the store um, and somebody is not serving us because uh, ignorant to us uh, in a bank or, you know, um, in a daily way is what I'm mm -hmm. saying. When you're encountering things like racism, we need to build the capacity of people to respond mm -hmm. in that moment. 
Mm -hmm. And not just the people who are like having the racist acts committed against them, but for everybody else who's around them in a position of privilege to use some of that privilege to speak up. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a, a silly example. I went to the car wash and there was a fellow parked, uh, an older non-native guy, white guy, had a big fancy truck. And you know, at the car wash, you're not supposed to um, just leave your car. You're supposed Mm -hmm. to get the ticket and then go in line. So my first thing is I see this truck is empty. I'm waiting and I think, God, what's happened? Then I check to see if somebody's in danger, like they had a heart attack and maybe they felt I don't see anyone. And, you know, I'm a single mom. I got things no to kidding. do. <laughs> Can't be waiting in line I, like that. I pulled ahead of him. Mm. I pulled ahead of him. And then this guy came up, as, like went from zero to 60. Now, this is only one recent example yes. for me as an Indigenous person. Yes. And you can't tell by the podcast, but I am five, one and a half. And I have seen many non-Indigenous men go from zero to a hundred in seconds mm-hmm. in response to me, particularly when I stand up for myself. Yep. Mm-hmm. So this fellow came hollering up the road and I said, I didn't think any, you know, I tried the rationale, the reasoning. You left your car, you're not supposed to do that. I'm here now. And I got sworn at, called names, And then uh, he came to step to me. I, again, I responded, but this time I used some, I think you call them superlatives. I swore at him. I, uh, and I also maintain the right to that. We don't control the language that those stories come through as well Mm -hmm. as part of a part of expressing anyways. So my kids are allowed to swear is what I'm Mm -hmm. I'm allowed to swear. And mm-hmm. I, I, after living in a world that tells, you know, that's, you know, you've got to be the better person. Yeah. Like, no, yeah. Mm-hmm. You've got to be the better person, you asshole. Yeah. Fuck that. <laughs> yeah. So I hollered at him and, and then there was uh, somebody who had seen another white person who had seen what was transpiring and he walked up and he said, you know, quit it, quit talking like that. And um, then he said, you know, you're not supposed, well, first he said, you're not supposed to leave your car, you know, the logic. And then he said, and stop talking to her like that. And then of course, the thing that pisses me off about that situation is that's when the guy- mm-hmm. I was gonna say, I bet you he backed oh, off. I was just gonna say, let me guess, then he listened, yeah. Well, that's when he decided to. I think that he should have paid attention to of what course. I said and saw me as a human being who had enough and had boundaries. But you know, the story of indigenous women of yes. being missing and murdered. Mm-hmm is a story that we don't often talk about how it actually happens in in spaces mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that and time like that, right? Yeah, being able to address it, you know, I, I could have done something else. I could have stepped to him more myself. Mm-hmm. I could have done all of those things and I would have been wrong because I was protecting mm-hmm. myself, right? Mm-hmm. So anyways, yeah. And in that moment, yeah. in that moment, you're also protecting yourself by choosing not to, right? Because of those, you know, the uncertainty of what his next step is. And I wanted, I just want to thank you for even sharing that story because, you know, it's one of many, I'm sure, 
that are there. But when you mention just sort of like humanizing the experience of indigenous women um, in the space that they occupy, those are the stories that it's a gift for you to share that in order for people to um, maybe who aren't connected to that experience to really truly understand what that actually looks like. Exactly. And in my life experience, of course, most of my experience wouldn't been that somebody on the outside, especially another white guy would step in and say this was wrong. I mean, I'm sure that guy left. He was like very proud of himself and all yeah. those things, and he, <laughs> which is fine and whatever. But, you know, I also we shouldn't des- get pats on the back for stepping in and doing mm-hmm. the right thing when they see something. On. But most of my life experience has been people watching, just watching and then telling you as a Native person that you're still wrong, no matter what the event is. The moment I swear, mm-hmm. the moment mm-hmm. I respond to protection of myself, I become mm-hmm. savage. Mm-hmm. Oof. My uh, family are part of a hip hop group called Savage Family. Oh, cool. They're my favorite music in the world even though I'm not very cool with hip hop and all that stuff (laughs) amazing but there's a reason behind using the word savage because the original meaning of that word is closer to land and uh, that is so you know we're trying to get back more to being that Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) but not the way the colonials taking it back yeah (laughs) yeah and that concludes part one of our conversation with Chuanes please stay tuned for the pause for momentum And now it's time for us to pause for momentum. This week, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to read a poem written by somebody else. So this poem is written by Lee Miracle, one of the poets who Chiwinas mentioned during our conversation. It is called Everything Begins With Song. The sweet mountain breath of wind whispering through cedar, earth symphony. Wind taps out tunes to the valley floors. Even the howling storm winds sing agonizingly beautiful songs, arias of painful transformation we come to love. Songs hooked to the language of wind lessens this burden of being, couples itself to the promise of language. Voice elevates being, renders life manageable. There is power in the breath we pass over vibrating vocal cords. The words carry a charge. The spark invites response. The hum of song points receivers in the direction of the good life. The breath of others takes their own journey through the body, passes breath through some imagined future. We acknowledge that Gaining Momentum is recorded, produced, and edited on the unceded territory of the Selic Okanagan people and the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Gaining Momentum. Gaining Megan and Abby. With artwork by Catherine Katjak. Music by Evan Dysart. Please check our show notes with each episode for more information on Catherine and Evan, plus how you can stay in touch with us through email, Instagram, and Facebook. We look forward to hearing from you.